Our scripture reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send to you Jesse the Bethlehem, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me who I am declared to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Concentrate yourself and come with me to sacrifice. And he concentrated. Jesse and his sons invited them to the sacrifice. But when they came, he looked on Eli and thought, Surely the Lord anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, nor the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not a man sees. He looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadah and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema passed by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made his seven of his sons before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. Sam are these all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of, of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Rahim. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the up-passing power belongs to God and not us. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Pillar. Good morning. My name is Ron, and I'm one of the elders here, and I'm happy to continue our series in our, our series this summer, Ordinary People, Gospel Power. And thanks to Eden, and thanks, Kennedy, for being part of the service. You girls did great. Uh, I'm going to start with the title. The title of the, of the sermon today is called The God of Irony. But before we get to that, let me ask you this. 19, come with me to 1987. Almost a perfect year, isn't it? How many of you were alive in 1987, first of all? Okay. Uh, so how many of you graduated high school in 1987 like me? <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, a little, little less there, a little less.
1987, joined, joined the Air Force at tech school, Biloxi, Mississippi, and I went to the movies. And I watched Good, uh, Good Morning Vietnam. You know this movie, you've seen this movie, Robin Williams, disc jockey, Vietnam War. And there's a scene in this movie that marked me for really decades after this. It was so powerful. And it's a scene that you may or may not even remember this, but there's a scene where there's a montage of quick cuts all with the Vietnam War. So you see soldiers shooting and walking through the forests, and you see people screaming and being chased and kids crying for their parents, and shots of war and destruction and sadness. And th this scene, probably three, four minutes long, just these quick cuts, Barry Levinson, the director, didn't leave the diegetic mu sound in, the sounds of explosions and the sounds of cries and screams. He stripped all of that off. He stripped the diegetic music off and rather overlaid it with a song from Louis Armstrong that you're all familiar with. What a wonderful world. Do you know this song? I've seen trees of green. Red roses too. Do you know the confidence you have to have to sing in front of a crowd when you can't sing? Thank you, yeah, yeah. Well, and I asked myself, what a wonderful world. You, you know this song, right? It's played at weddings, perhaps. It's, it's a very sentimental, sweet, emotional song. And so Levinson did, as a director, he took this sweet music and put it and overlaid it with these horrific images. And while I was an 18-year-old kid. I didn't know much about film study or film theory. But this idea of ironic, an ironic presentation really marked me. I remember this scene for decades after, even though I hadn't seen the movie much since then. And so when I was in an English teacher, after I was English teaching 15 years later, and I was doing a unit on film study, like that was the first scene I could think of to teach this to kids, how a film director can use irony for power. Because irony matters in film and story, as we'll see. But irony also matters to God, is what my argument is going to be today. Now, a quick, real basic definition of irony is this, is when the actual that happens is opposite than what is expected or what is normal. So this is situational irony, when the situations don't match what is expected or what is normal. And the best example that I would teach students, and you perhaps have heard from your English teacher somewhere in the, in, the, in the way, is a police officer robbing a bank is ironic, because it's opposite of what we would expect. A firefighter starting a blaze uh, is an arsonist who's also a firefighter. We see that as an ironic image, because they shouldn't match. It doesn't work. It's the opposite. Just like the song and the images in, in uh, Good Morning Vietnam were opposites, we see that when the opposite is, when the actual of what happens is the opposite of what we expect to happen, it creates an ironic effect, either for power, for sweetness, for comedy sometimes. And we see another ironic example next chapter when David, the boy, defeats Goliath, the mighty warrior. That's a sermon for a couple of weeks from now. But we see this oftentimes when the opposite is happening. And God uses irony for his glory, as we see in today's message in the calling of David as king. My main idea is this. God chooses the lowly to raise mightily in order to glorify the holy. He chooses specifically those who are low in stature to raise mightily in order to bring glory to himself. And so we see this right from our story that Kennedy read, is that Samuel the prophet 
is, has installed Saul earlier as Israel's first king. Israel wanted a king to be like other nations, and God chose Saul. And Samuel chose Saul, uh, installed Saul in that. But now is the time for change. Saul has changed his heart, as we'll see. And he knows, that is, Samuel knows that he has to go to Bethlehem as God and choose somebody from one of Jesse's sons. Bethlehem's important. What, how does Bethlehem work into the story later, later, later on? Kids, what happens in Bethlehem? Jesus is born in Bethlehem later, years later. And so here he's told, Samuel's told by God, go to Bethlehem, find Jesse, and appoint one of his sons. We don't even know if Samuel knows Jesse at this point. He's told to find some guy. One of his sons is going to be king. And so he, he brings his offering. Jesse says, yes, I have sons. I have seven, actually eight, but one doesn't count. I have seven sons that I want to put in front of you here. And Eliab is the oldest. Eliab is, if you need to picture someone like Eliab, Dan Macy up here uh, is Eliab right here. Big, strong, just looks sta stately, doesn't he? I would... I <laughs> Dan, I set you up for that one. So that's, that's good. So Eliab comes marching in with his big barrel chest, and instantly, no, nope. God says to Samuel, nope, that's not him. Well, here's my second son. He's not as tall, not as good looking, not as strong. Abinadab. I mean, he's still looking pretty good. Nope. Okay. Third son, Shema. God says, mm, Shema. I was trying that out. It's not, it doesn't work. Okay, nope, not that one here. They start parading right, right as if it's a Miss America pageant. They're parading all of these big, strong men who are very kingly before Samuel. God tells Samuel, nope, 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 nope. Gets to the seventh. Nope. You got any more sons? And Jesse is like, no, yeah, I mean, the one out in the field, the kid, the youngest one, send him. We're not going to sit until he comes. I always like that. We're not going to sit until he comes. He's all the way out in the field. This seems like something Marines do uh, in a meeting or something. We're not going to sit until something happens. I don't know. Is that true? I, I, I'll ask my favorite Marines here. And so David comes in, and he just walks in the room. No qualifications here. No, there's no test. And the Lord says to Samuel, this is him. Anoint him. And this is an important event. The sheep herder, the kid from the field, who was even overlooked by his father as not even in contestant of this, is the appointed son. Early America used to have this textbook that all kids would use called the New England Primer. Uh, and it, it goes through the alphabet with Bible stories. And the New England Primer has this scene right here. It's, I should have uh, amplified it. The one that for S is Samuel appoints whom God, Samuel anoints whom God appoints. And this is what happened. Samuel anointed David who God appointed. Now imagine the reaction of Jesse. Jesse, who probably takes pride in his seven strapping boys, men who are going to be king, passed, 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 passed. I think that was seven. You're choosing him? I'd love to hear this from one of the brothers' side. Eli, the oldest, saying, you're choosing him over me? Do you know how much I can bench press for crying out loud? And you're choosing him over me. Uh, just this disbelief. 
And then finally, just David. Can you imagine David's idea? He walks in from the field, still smelling of manure or whatever uh, fields smell like, and he comes in and, oh, by the way, you're going to be the new king of Israel. Huh? The confusion. Maybe even thinking that God has made a mistake. You see, the oldest and the tallest and the strongest and the best looking, that's the person who should be king, not the kid. David isn't first string material like his brothers are. He's not second, third, fourth. He's eighth string material. That's deep, deep bench. I don't know anything about sports, but I know that that's bad if you're an athlete. That's bad. But we're told this in verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There was something in David's heart that caused God to choose him. David is opposite from Saul in two ways, his height and his heart. Saul, we're told in, in chapter 9, that Saul is a head above everybody else, quite literally, probably a foot taller than everybody else around him. So he has this statuesque look, this Greek god statue look that Saul has. David is not like that. He's a kid, a little kid. But his heart is different. Well, a young, small, short one should never be the one to be king. Saul and Jesse and all the brothers and even David himself probably thought that God made a mistake in choosing him. But here's where irony comes in. The reality of what happens is opposite of what is expected. Kings are supposed to look and act and think and conduct themselves a certain way. They shouldn't be shepherds or 15-year-old boys. But God chooses the lowly to raise mightily. David is anointed by Saul. Verse 13 that Kennedy read and the following verse that wasn't read today says two things happened in this moment. He walks in the room. He's picked anointed king of Israel. The spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. And the next verse says the spirit departed from Saul. And so the idea of being anointed is that we have this mark of leadership in the Bible. We see it that God gives his spirit to kings and prophets and priests. And this is the mark of leadership. So the spirit comes on David at that moment, the same moment where it is removed from Saul. And David goes from sheep herder to armor bearer to Saul and eventually to king. God uses the lowly like David, who has very few qualifications to be king, and he uses him to be king. Irony. Now, this anointing started this over-decades-long battle between Saul, the reigning king, and David, the appointed king, who's not yet king. About a 15-year period between David's appointment at about 15 years old and when David becomes king of Israel, actually takes the throne at about 30. That leaves a 15-year time where Saul is still reigning without the Spirit of God. Now, in American politics, we have what's called the lame duck period of politicians. Presidents, representatives, senators, we all elect them the first Tuesday in November, usually November 3rd, 4th, 5th, somewhere around there. However, they don't take office till January 20th at noon. The original Constitution said it was March, so you used to have this four-month lame duck period where you could actually win, lose the election, but you're still in office for up to four and a half months. Now, the 20th Amendment uh, shortened it to about a month and a half, but still, a month and a half. Imagine if you were a senator, you lost the race to this new kid, and yet you still have a month and a half of reign. It's called the lame duck period, is that these people don't want to do anything. They stand back. They're ineffective. 
captive. They're actually mocked in a lot of ways. They're losers who still have the throne. Well, we have a month and a half of a lame duck period. Saul had 15 years of a lame duck period. And Saul was not stepping back, allowing David to transition properly to the, to the rule of under the Lord. No, Saul was doing the opposite. Saul was coming at David and fighting him at every turn, including death on his life. Saul was clenching white-knuckled grips to his own rule and to his own dynasty at any cost. He was willing to kill Samuel for this. He was willing to kill David. But he couldn't believe God. God would not depart from me and give it to this kid. In fact, this kid is my son's best friend. I am not going to give up my authority to my son's best friend. He's a kid. Well, the Lord looks on the heart, we're told, and Saul's heart was clear. Now, in this, we know the kind of the legacy of David. David ended up ruling for about 40 years. He reunited the northern and southern kingdoms. He said that, and you probably know this verse, he's a man after God's own heart. We, we hear that. It's a really important idea. And I love this. If God sees the heart, he saw in David that David was a man after God's own heart. So you have this like cyclical heart connection between God and David. David is mentioned about 1,100 times in the Bible. Only one person is mentioned more in the Bible than David. What's your guess? Sunday school answer. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is only, the only one mentioned. And then, of course, David's legacy is clear, is that he's a linkage to Jesus. So Jesus' line comes through. Jesse comes through David, and is, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This great Jesus, the Messiah, comes through this small forgotten, ordinary, regular shepherd boy. Uses the lowly to bring glory to God. You see, God is the God of irony. He seems to love the idea to choose those who defy expectations as it brings utmost glory to himself. So choosing the shepherd boy not only brings glory to God to show that he doesn't need someone's strength and height and wisdom and character, all those things that Jesse's sons supposedly had, but he can do his work through the everyday, ordinary, simple. So not only does it point the way to God, but it almost shows God's sense of humor. Irony does produce humor in a lot of ways. And this is kind of funny that God works through those that we don't expect. So if God just chose the tallest, the smartest, the best looking, the perfect people, it wouldn't be irony at all. It would be life because that's the way it works in our society. If you were tall and smart and good looking and perfect, talented, you would probably succeed. I mean, there is a study that says that the better looking people end up accomplishing more in life. They have more advantages. I should know. <laughs> it is true. Uh, a little too loud of a laugh. <laughs> Hope that's not irony. But we like these stories. We, we, we do like stories with talented, strong, fast people. I mean, we have an entire Marvel Cinematic Universe that's filled with these heroes that are strong beyond superhuman powers and fast and bright. But more often, we like those stories, perhaps like God does, that uses the small or the unwilling or the unprepared character to do great things for the world in some way. And so a character like Captain Marvel is so uninteresting to me, uh, and the box office receipts show that. People don't like this overly powerful character. Give me a character like Reepicheep from Narnia 
any day, unexpected. It's a mouse for crying out loud, but yet the mouse does great things. Superman, in, uh, we're outside of Marvel, but Superman is far less interesting of a character than Frodo Baggins is. And we look at these two heroes, one of them is so powerful that it's almost like, yeah, it's not interesting. Give me the small, the unwilling, maybe the unprepared character to do great things. And so when Frodo and Samwise ascends Mount Doom to save Middle Earth, this idea is so ridiculous and unlikely and ironic and beautiful. This is why we like these stories. And we see the purpose of the use of irony even in the verse that it kind of uh, captures our series. Our verse that uh, Kennedy read, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is the, the verse that links together this whole summer series is that we have treasure in jars of clay, ordinary things, to show that the surpassing power is not in us but belongs to God. You remember God, uh, John's challenge to kids last week? Do you remember what it was? Memorize this verse for what? Grace? Blue seal ice cream. Now, I got to tell you, I have to correct John. He made a theological error last week, and that's what I'm here for, to correct <laughs> He talked about mint chocolate chip. No. Blue wave. Blue wave is where it is. So that's the truth of, of uh, blue seal ice cream. And so memorize this verse. You will uh, get uh, blue wave ice cream. Uh, but here, in this verse here, we have this treasure in jars of clay. What, what's the treasure we're talking about? God's power, God's work. That is the treasure that is in this gar, jar of clay. And then we have jars of clay. I mean, people described as jars of clay. I'm not a jar. I'm not clay. So what, what is Paul meaning? Maybe we can see this by looking at the opposite of this metaphor that he's using. Paul is saying we are jars of clay. We're not a chalice of crystal, perhaps, or a goblet of gold. We're not this great worth, this item of great worth in any way. But here we have two pieces of dishware that we're kind of compared to by uh, direct or indirect. The jar of clay is poor, boring, plain, everyday, unassuming. There's nothing fancy about this jar of clay. Whereas the goblet of gold is exciting and ornate, special. Of value here. If you were digging in your backyard, which would you rather come across? What would you be more excited? The jar of clay would be like, oh, great, clay. But the goblet of gold, all of a sudden, you're going to college. Uh, and so there's something valuable in that. I like to pick up trash on the side of the road, and my family can attest to this. So thank God for PCS season. Uh, it keeps me well in supply. Uh, and so driving by, I stop almost every morning on the way to work uh, through housing, and I throw in something or another. And uh, if I saw a jar of clay, I really would drive right by it. There's no real value in that in itself. But if I saw a golden goblet of some kind, I would say, hey, yay for me. My kids can go to college now. Uh, it, but the idea is because the clay has nothing really to it. It doesn't point to itself. The goblet has intrinsic value in itself, or the crystal uh, chalice has something in itself that we can have value. But for the clay jar to be worth something, it would have to have a story behind it. It would have to be either from a certain historical period 
or created by a master craftsman. It has to have someone's name attached to it. And then that jar of clay has great value. Well, David is that jar of clay. David had nothing valuable in and of himself. He was a kid. He worked with sheep. He stunk probably all the time. He was neglected and forgotten in a lot of ways, even by his dad when it came to important things. But God has his hands on this jar of clay to do something great. In order to show the power of God, God sometimes uses the plain, the thing we wouldn't expect, the ironic, to show his power. The power is not in David, but is in David show, using, being used by God. God picks someone ordinary so that he can do these real extraordinary things with him. David is that jar of clay next to the chalices of crystal of his brothers. And so all of these either golden goblets or, or crystal chalices, whatever metaphor is the opposite of a jar of clay, they kept walking by, one, two, all the way to seven. And then David comes, this simple, simple item, jar of clay, and God uses the humble to bring glory and honor to himself. Now, it's not just David that's a jar of clay. We are jars of clay as well. This is us. We are all everyday, ordinary people. And we don't have to doubt this. We don't doubt that we are mere jars of clay. I promise you today that we don't, you don't need convincing that you are not as smart, as funny, as strong, as humble, as gifted, as good-looking or talented as other people around you. Don't look. You'll embarrass them. But uh, you know you are lacking in those areas. You are painfully aware of your inadequacies. You know that in some areas of your life, you are not second string. You are third, fourth, eighth string in this area. What you do need convincing of, what we all need convincing, is not that we're inadequate. We know that. We hide that well. But what we need convincing is that in your inadequacies, God wants to use you. And in fact, it's because of your inadequacies God wants to use you. Not in spite of them, but sometimes because of them, God wants to use you. Because of those weaknesses that you have in your life, God can shine. Now, I know the ways that I, all the ways that I fall short in life. I'm inadequate in many areas. Like you, perhaps, I compare myself to people, and I usually end up the loser in those comparisons. I'm not as gifted as this person, or well-liked as that person, or good-looking as this person, or well-versed in the Bible as this person. The list can go on and on. But this is a starting point for all of us. It's a starting point for God to work in our lives. He uses the jar of clay to show the surpassing power of God, and it's from God and not from me. I don't put my own talents to say, God, lucky you. Look what you get to work with. That would be silly. God wants the jar of clay because he knows there is nothing to work with with a jar of clay except him. When I was a relatively new Christian, early 90s or so, I remember having this thought and even a pseudo-theological conversation with friends saying, you know, if Michael Jordan, he was at the top of his game at the time, he's a basketball player, I don't know, we're, we're kind of different ages now, but uh, if Michael Jordan were a Christian, think about all the people that would come to Jesus because of him. And I kind of really believe that. If Michael Jordan, and we can take that celebrity out and put whoever is mostly popular today, if this person were a Christian and talked about Jesus, oh man, then God could really accomplish his ends. 
We doubt, and we know this, we doubt that God uses plain, ordinary, ungifted people like you and like me to accomplish God-glorifying ends. We sometimes wrongly think that you need to be at the top of your game celebrity style in order for God to use it. No, God's kingdom is furthered through these jars of clay like David and you and me because it shows that God is indeed in this. It is not my own talents or skills or beauty. It is God himself. Now, this is all upside down to conventional thinking. This is not the way we should be thinking. It's countercultural. It's the opposite of what's, what's expected. It is ironic. And the same doubt that God could use a very simple guy like me, ordinary, plain, untalented jar of clay, if we doubt that, we perhaps have the same doubt that comes from that same dark place that we once struggled with, that God choosing me to bring to salvation. We still think, like, oh, I can't come to Jesus. I'm not good enough to come to Jesus. This may be you today. Maybe you struggled with that before you were a Christian. It's that, why would God ever want me? Doesn't he know what I did? Doesn't he know what kind of evil thoughts I have or the addiction I have or what kind of struggles or doubts I have? We somehow doubt God can do it until I end up. I get talented in some way and then I'm worthy to God. This is the same way in our salvation that God uses jars of clay. God pursued you as the rebel. If you're outside of Christ right now, you are a rebel living in your sin. But yet God pursues you. He pursues jars of clay as a deeply loved son or daughter. The normal way that this operates is that you have to be talented and you rise to the top. You work hard, you get noticed. You are gifted, you accomplish great things. Jesus turned this all on its head. The father chases those who don't deserve it and makes them adopted sons and daughters. He doesn't chase those who deserve it, there would be no irony in that. The irony is that he does the opposite. He chases you because you don't deserve it. And he makes plain, untalented people, sons and daughters, and brings them into the, the kingdom. It's not just us that are jars of clay. It's not just David that jars of clay. However, Jesus is another jar of clay. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't arrive in a way that people thought he should as a spectacular king, full of riches, political power, military might. He came as a simple boy to an ordinary family in the far corner of the Roman Empire. This is a problem. Jews thought the Messiah would come on a white horse riding in with uh, legions filled to take over and to toss off the Roman Empire with this great pomp and circumstance playing. But Jesus arrived with a mere whisper. It's not the way we would plan it. If God is made to flesh to dwell among us, if it were up to us in this faulty thinking, we would want God to be more like Superman coming from Krypton, having the powers that the yellow sun brings, and that's the way we would do it. That's the way it should be. But rather, Jesus comes more like Frodo Baggins from the Shire, unassuming, plain, ordinary, to do great things for the kingdom of God. Isaiah 53 is, is a prophetic verse for Jesus, and I think this is very encouraging about Jesus. We often have a picture of Jesus, uh, as we see in storybooks. He's a very good-looking guy, long hair. Today, he'd have a little top man bun on top, maybe. Uh, but this verse is encouraging to guys like me. 
says that Jesus had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I always found this verse somehow comforting as a less than average good-looking guy. Jesus was also probably a pretty, maybe a homely guy even. Uh, not very attractive. He's not the you know, light in the back, hair flowing in the wind or anything like that. He's not very pleasing to look at. There was no beauty in him, it says. I like to go further and think that Jesus really, in his early 30s, was a short, bald guy. I just think that that would really bring comfort. Uh, God is the God of irony. He uses the plain to accomplish the great every time, including with his son. Jesus was a jar of clay. We are jars of clay. David was this jar of clay. Now, with this in mind, how ought we respond? What, what are we to do with this idea? Now, first is confession, because if we're honest with ourselves, we have this thought that God can't use us because we don't have some particular talent. We're not as blank as the next guy or the next woman, whatever the adjective is in that. We constantly compare ourselves to this person. God's using that person. If I were only like that person, God would use me too. We've done it at church this morning. If you're honest with yourselves, you know how you compare yourself to other people, and you were at the losing side. Whether it's not as talented, whether it's not as outgoing or attractive or skilled in parenting, or perhaps a, you're not as strong of a spouse, if I could get, we think, any of these fixed, God could use me. Well, wherever you are in life, that's where God wants to use you. Starting to think about wishing for talents and beauty can lead us to idolatry if we're not already there. We need to confess this idea as sin. The Michael Jordan quote that I had was a sinful idea that I had because it was a faulty look of God. Yes, God uses our talents. That's a sermon for another time. God uses our talents for great things as well. But let's put all that aside. If I think that only the accomplished among us can do great things for God, we are in a sad state of affairs because we have a sad view of God. If only I, and fill in the blank here, if only I could play guitar, I could really do good things for God. If only I were married, I could do anything. If only my marriage was stronger. If only I were taller or handsomer. If only I were an officer. If only I were an uh, older. Kids, this is you. You are often looked as the ultimate jar of clay, is that you not only are plain, unassuming, but sometimes we think, and you may think this too, that only the adults do gospel-level work. Kids just sit and watch. Wait your turn. No, David wasn't waiting his turn. God used David to do great things. God can use you, too, to do great things as well. God is eager to use you. We have a God who forgives sin, and so perhaps our first response is to ask forgiveness to God for allowing us to have this faulty view of God and comparing ourselves, and not being willing to be used by God in the simplest ways. Well, the other side that we can accomplish, not only confession, but is our heart exercise. If verse 7 is true, for the Lord sees, not as man sees, the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, maybe we should focus on the condition of our heart. Maybe that is something that we ought to do. We're in a culture that values the outward appearance so much, that is so important. I mean, you all are beautiful people here. Look at you, well-dressed, beautiful, strong, youthful. But maybe we do that and ignore our heart. It might be you today. Maybe we spend more time on our outward appearances 
to impress even the godly among us than we do on the condition of our hearts. While going to the gym too much has never been my sin, (laughs) there are ways that we try to strengthen our outward appearance. Instead of trying to collect muscle and tone, maybe we are trying to collect, uh, accumulate money or knowledge or respect or name. My name means something. Maybe my outward appearance is too much. And I need to say, like, if the Lord looks at the heart, how is my heart? How is your heart? What are we doing to strengthen our heart? I want God to look at my heart over my outward appearance because all of us, our outward appearance is not going to impress God at all. Um, And so it's not just Bible reading and praying, but it's quietness, caring for others, serving others. What would Pillar Okinawa look like today and every other Sunday if we believe that God uses regular, ordinary people to do gospel work in Okinawa and beyond? What would Pillar look like? What would our Sunday Sunday gatherings look like if we believe that God could use regular people day in and day out and not just people who stand on this black strip up front? Because you may think the same thing that a lot of us think is that this is where ministry happens. God uses all of these people. I mean, there's like, there's like a, a skylight right to heaven right here. God uses anyone up here, back there, maybe someday. Wait your turn. You'll be old enough someday. And maybe you can be here and use How foolish is that? How foolish is that? Imagine if we thought that these people up here, playing the piano, singing, preaching, playing the drums, what if all of you... Talking with a new person over a cup of coffee is just as God-glorifying and even better for the kingdom of God than what anybody does up front here. What would our workplaces look like if we stopped trying to show everybody how talented and essential we are and tried to serve people well? What would our homes look like if we had this idea that our children, our spouses, or our parents are also jars of clay? fragile jars of clay that need to be nurtured. This is what we want to do because God, you see, is a God of irony and he does the opposite of all our traditional wisdom. We are steeped in a culture where the external is everything and the heart can be masked and hidden. I can hide my heart. I can hide my problems from you. I can hide my struggles and my doubts and my sins from you well as long as I look good on the outside. Imagine if everything was flipped And we started to tell people what was in our heart so that we can strengthen each other, so that we can support and pray each other. Think about what God could do among us if we had that honesty. God chooses the lowly to raise mightily to glorify the holy. This is not about David now. This is about you. God chooses you to raise mightily in spite of yourself. has nothing to do with you sometimes. God wants to use the plain you to glorify himself. Now, ironically, God pursues rebels. Normally, when we pursue any, any state, even America, when they find traitors, what's the punishment for traitors? Say it. Death. Yeah, you can put to death traitors. That is the, the normal expected thing to do to traitors. We run from God as traitors, but rather than doing what is expected and even justified, God does the opposite. He makes us sons and daughters. 
Jesus came to earth not as a goblet of gold or a chalice of crystal, but as a jar of clay. And on that cross, he was shattered so that all of us jars of clay could have this right relationship. Irony of the universe that commands every single atom in this entire world and can do whatever he pleases at any time, he uses simple, ordinary people like you, like me, to display his surpassing power and glory. Gods don't work like that. Our God is an ironic God. He uses the ordinary so that we can't boast to say, God, look how lucky you are. Do you know how lucky you are to have me and all of my talents? No, God pursues me so that we can say, God, I give you glory for that. It is this God of irony that makes sinners saints and rebels sons and daughters. And it is this God who pursues you relentlessly today. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for being that God who pursues us. We thank you for looking beyond our whatever talents we think we have, whatever struggles we do have, Lord. You look beyond that, Lord. You use plain, ordinary people like us, Lord. I pray that you would convict us of ways that we haven't believed that. I pray that you would convict us, Lord, that we need to look to you for glory, and we look to you to use us, Lord, not as at our talents or at our lack of talents, Lord. We confess that to you today, Lord. And Lord, we ask that you would use us mightily for your kingdom our everyday plain selves.